Hello, everyone, and welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheffy, and normally you would be seeing Dania, but we're having a little bit of a technical difficulty. You can't see her, but you will be able to hear her. Um, and join me in welcoming a very special guest today. Her name is Bernice Bennett. She is the author of a book called Our Ancestors, Our Stories. She is also one of the, the team behind the very popular series, uh, blog, uh, sorry, online podcasting series, Blog Talk Radio. So welcome to the show, Bernice. Thank you. How are you today? I'm doing well. Good, good. And again, just really, really so pleased to have you on the show. Um, and for full transparency for people, uh, Bernice also has deep roots uh, in the old 96 region of South Carolina, which encompasses Edgefield, as well as many other counties in the present day. Um, we were just chatting before the show, and again, like Donia, she and I are going to probably be related in any number of ways. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that is the beauty of where we come from and our ancestors. You're so right about that. <laughs> so I'm going to jump straight in. Okay. Um, I'm, I'd, really, I'd like to spend a couple of moments talking about our ancestors, our stories, because mm -hmm. uh, it, it was a really powerful book. And if I remember correctly, that's really one of the first kind of genealogical and historical books coming out of that part of South Carolina. Am I right in thinking that? It's one of the first books where you have uh, descendants coming out of African-American descendants writing a book. Uh, a collaborative book at that, where we're each telling our stories about how we either from Edgefield at the beginning, or we discovered that we had ancestral roots in Edgefield. So it, it takes different people on different journeys as you read this collaborative book. So if you wouldn't mind, because um, Donnie and I were always talking about how rewarding working collaboratively is, um, both in terms of research or whatever other projects that you're working on. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the other people who are involved in the book and how you met them and kind of how the whole project came together? Right. Well, the historian uh, who wrote the first part of the book is Harris Bailey. And I met Harris Bailey because through my own research of trying to find living relatives, I connected with his wife, who ended up being my second cousin. <laughs> and, and through my conversation with her, I said, listen, I really want to understand the historical context of where my ancestors came from. And she said, well, go to Harris. Harris is the one that can give you the information that you need. And Harris immediately uh, suggested that I read in, in my father's house, there are many mansions by um, Dr. Vernon Burton. And so that was one person that I knew by way of my genealogical search. Uh, Ellen Butler is another author, and I met Ellen Butler through another researcher, Samira. And she told Ellen, hey, Bernice lives in the Washington, D.C. area. Why don't you contact her? I met uh, the other researcher, Ethel, Ethel Daly, because Ethel walked in. Now, just imagine somebody walking in to the Tompkins Library, which is where the old Edgefield Genealogical Society is located. And I just said, who are you looking for? And she said, Luke Cook. 
I said, well, wait a minute. My great-great-grandmother is in the household with Luke Cook listed as sister. Can you imagine? That's the 1880 census. I didn't know her. She didn't know me. And here we discovered that we were related. And then Vincent Shepard uh, came on board as a result of Etna Gail Bush. And she knew him and she knew of his work in Johnston and what he was doing with his family. And she recommended him to be a part of the book project. Excellent. And I have to ask, as part of the, the whole writing process, um, both the research and you know the teamwork and all of the finds that you were making, how did you find that your relationship with Edgefield um, changed? My Well, first of all, I discovered that as far as my relationship with Edgefield, I found a whole bunch of family members from Edgefield. I mean, I had no idea. As I said, my father is originally from 96. So as I began to research 96 with the map and a picture of my grandmother, Edgefield came up. And so now I feel a very close tie to Edgefield because I said that was that's my beginning as far as my uh, paternal family is concerned. Exactly. And I always find it a really interesting kind of process because like I had never heard of Edgefield before. I think the first time I'd actually heard that my maternal grandmother was from there, I think I was about 30, 33 or 34. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I knew that my grandmother came from South Carolina, and as we were speaking before the show, no one in the family really wanted to talk about it. So all I knew is Granny came from South Carolina growing up as a kid, and that was it. But, in the, you know, in the course of doing my own research and then meeting so many cousins online, um, for a place I have yet to step foot in, I plan on changing that this year, but for a place I've never stepped foot in, you know, I've cut come to really grow quite fond of Edgefield, um, even to the point of, you know, reading your book, um, reading other books about Edgefield, almost kind of getting a sense of the, the flavor, certainly the history of it. And um, I just have to think that the ancestors upstairs, you know, you were just talking about being in the, the research library, you know, the, the ancestors must be laughing, you know, all of, our, all of us distant relations, um, getting together, meeting, you know, and meeting one another. Yes. And, you know, you said you've never been there. Well, I have been there multiple times. In fact, I was just there two weeks ago. And so when I go, I mean, I do have a comfort, uh, just a comforting feeling just because I've been there so many times. And they, they have something that's very unique in that they have their own archives, the Edgefield archives, because the Records did not burn. So can you imagine just going to Edgefield and going into that archives and just reading all of these original documents, the documents that your ancestors touched or they had, they took a breath over and here you are now, you know, touching those documents. It's, it's very, um, it's a comforting feeling just to say I'm back at the home place. And that is, that is what it is, you know, the home place. No, that's true. I mean, I, thankfully, I've had that experience in Virginia, working on my, my, my father's people. And you're right, you know, holding those old kind of yellowing, curling pieces of paper, or, you know, even if you have to wear plastic gloves, it's, um, it's surreal. That, that's the best word that I, can, that I can use to describe it. And seeing someone's signature, 
Because um, again, you know, a lot of my people of color who were enslaved or even, even free people of color couldn't read or write. So when I was looking at documents, first of all, when I found a will for a black ancestor, the first will that I'd ever found for a black ancestor, I, you know, other people might take that for granted. But I, I, was, I kind of started misting up a bit. That was a really powerful moment for me. When I actually saw his signature, he didn't do a little X. He actually wrote his name out in beautiful cursive. That was, that was a really, it's little things like that that for me are really empowering. Yes, it is empowering. And, you know, although I, as I said, I was searching for the living. I mean, I learned a lot about my ancestors and my ancestral roots because I not only did I find that they were enslaved, but also found that my ancestor was in the militia, that my mm -hmm. ancestor was part of a jura, that they paid tax and the names were documented in newspapers. And so it, it gave me a better picture. It put it really, as you hear a lot of people talking about putting meat on the bones, it wasn't just it wasn't just this this inventory of which I did see my ancestor, uh, the one that I wrote about in the book was enslaved and in several transactions. And it's documented. I could see the trail. I could see the family. And this particular ancestor did take the uh, slaveholders surname. Okay, well, yes, especially um, the part of South Carolina that we that we come from, um, the whole surname thing is has has really been has really been a revelation. Uh, finding out where those surnames came from, um, again, very you know very kind of a very enriching and very powerful experience. And in terms of blog talk radio, yeah. I have to say I'm a fan. Um, I've been listening for, for many, many years. And the thing that I love about it is, again, you're one of the first kind of broadcasts to really delve into to African-American genealogy, um, which was really helpful to me when I, first, when I first started on my journey. And just inviting you to kind of talk a little bit about the team behind that and how you guys came together and kind of what Blog Talk Radio means for you. Well, first of all, it, it actually is not the first. The first, and I call her my mentor, was Antoinette Harrell out of Louisiana. And Antoinette Harrell had a blog talk radio show called Nurturing Our Roots. And with Nurturing Our Roots, um, she had a big, strong emphasis on peonage. And she uh, had a strong emphasis on the Delta, and what you can learn. And, and so she and I connected because of my work at the National Archives, and she would invite me to be a guest on her show. And I said to Antoinette, you know, I think I'm going to do my own blog talk radio show. And with my, and so she said, okay, then why don't you do a few with me? Let's see how it works out. And then branch out and do your own. And that's exactly what I did. Now, when you talk about a team behind it, I am the team. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I reach out to guests. I have uh, specific things that I want. I want historians. I want genealogists. 
I want ordinary people that are engaged in genealogical work, uh, work to come on and to share with others what they're doing. And so I pretty much opened the door for people to come to my show and be a guest on my show with the understanding that we will be talking for 60 minutes and I will be asking questions. And so I do ask them to, to recognize that this is going to happen. I'm going to have to stop for one second. Okay. Okay. Glenn. Okay, we're just waiting for Benice to come back. Sorry about that. That's fine. Life, real life happens. Real life happens. Real life happens. <laughs> You're right about that. Uh, but anyway, the, the door is open for individuals to come on my show. Excellent. And I guess where did the impetus really kind of come uh, come to actually launch the radio show? The impetus came, as I said before, from talking to Antoinette and doing research at the National Archives. I, I researched at the National Archives so much that that's my second home. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll tell people on my way going to my second home, if they had a cot that I could sleep there, I would. That's just how much I enjoy going into the records. And so I chose to name my show Research at the National Archives and then take it beyond because obviously that's not the only resource for people. And so the impetus for me and I hope for the listeners is that it was a show that would emphasize African-American research, but also bring others who knew various research strategies that are general to the, the public. Anybody could try these various strategies. Mm -hmm. Cool, again, something that we, we tried to do here. And I guess the next question I have with a little bit of a preface, I'm gonna say that, you know, I, I went through the American school system um, and I'm specifically thinking about the, the history courses and lessons that I had. And I'm gonna honestly say, and I, I know that Donnie has said this as well, I have learned more about American history doing genealogy than I ever learned in high school. Um, I found that the actual kind of real history of this country is far more, I mean, it's problematic. There's no getting away from it, but it's far richer and complex, multi-edged and richer than I, I can't speak for anyone else that, but from what I was actually taught in, in, um, in high school and, and even junior high school. Um, and again, one of the benefits for me in terms of one, finding about where I come from and my roots and my heritage is just how long my ancestors had been here. If anyone had told me that I'd had African ancestors in Virginia in 1619, I would have never believed them. If anyone had told me I'd had enslaved ancestors in Pennsylvania in 1692, that's the Matthews family from Edgefield, um, I would have never believed them, much less believed that I could get past that 1870 brick wall to be able to just kind of go all the way back to be able to find that kind of information out. So my question to you is, after that preamble, 
kind of what have you learned about American, you know, American history as it applies to your own family? Um, and I guess, what do you do with that? Well, first of all, I went through, of course, the American school system too. And so a lot was left out about our ancestors and, and how to even understand our ancestral roots. Africa, my view of Africa when I was coming up was the view that many people had and that was the Hollywood that was seeing Tarzan. We didn't, we, didn't, we didn't study anything about kings and queens and great nations and what have you. And so that was a piece of our history that was totally whitewashed. It was, well, I'll put it this way. It was blackwashed, negative. It was not a positive part of, of the educational process. Um, when you talk about history, there was basically not a lot of history of which I could say, oh, wow, my ancestors were a part of that. Oh, my ancestors were homesteaders. Nobody talked about that. I never heard that. And so throughout my research, I have gained a lot of knowledge about history and how my ancestor interacted with the whole American government and the system. I mean, I never, ever expected to find that in 1883, I would find an ancestor suing someone. I never thought that they would hire an attorney. That means just something that wasn't part of my thought process. But oh yes, I found a court case. You know, <laughs> and I'm like, go for it. Because you know, while you mentioned South Carolina, I'm also from Louisiana. In fact, I'm a native of New Orleans. Right. And so you could imagine growing up in New Orleans, we have a totally different, I mean, it's a cultural difference that you find in, in Louisiana. And our history is much stronger there also. But I'm also finding just stuff to be excited about with my family in Louisiana. And uh, I have a new book coming out. Oh. And yes. If you'd like to talk a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, this book is based on uh, a grandmother's narrative. You know, one of the things that I, I do encourage people to, to talk to somebody, get some information from your elders. And so it's, it's my grandmother's narrative about her grandfather's name and her grand, that she was named after her grandmother and that he owned a lot of land. Now that's it. Now with that narrative, and she was born in 1894. So I'm talking about a hundred year old lady telling me this information. And so that is what my book is about. Me trying to verify the narrative and find the legacy. And of course I did find it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have to ask, how close to the narrative are the records that you're finding? Absolutely. Right on target. The first thing I had to do was verify her grandfather's name. Right. Started off, there was an old family Bible. Can you imagine finding an old family Bible with my grandmother's grandfather's name in it? And he was born in 1855. It is in the Bible. Wow. So, 
so you know I'm 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 a very excitable and happy dance type person. So right there, I said, okay, she she was right on target. The second was that her grandfather's wife, which would be my two times great grandmother's name, was Rebecca Youngblood. So what did I find? A 1874 marriage license. You know, it's almost like I'm checking the boxes. She said this, she said that. I found them. I also found my three times great grandparents. Now, she didn't tell me about them, but because I found my two times, I was able to find the three times. And this is something that people, you know, really can't, sometimes can't find. But I also found a marriage license for them and also discovered that my three times great grandfather on the young blood side was a farmer in 1870, the man owned land in 1870. And so everything, I mean, it just kind of lined up over and over again. Of course, when you start doing research, you do find some unexpected things. And I did run into some tragedy. But uh, with that tragedy, I did find my grandfather, my two times grandfather's name in the newspaper. And that was 1883. So, you know, it, it all tied in to the narrative, but I couldn't repeat that. I didn't want to repeat it until I had the evidence to support it. No. And the book takes you through that journey. Well, it sounds fascinating. And for just for the benefit of our viewers, can you just repeat the title of it again? It's called My Becky's. My Becky's. My Becky. Her name is Rebecca, but we mm -hmm. call her My Becky. And the what? When would that be available for sale? In the spring. Excellent. Yes. Well, I will, I will look. One will certainly be looking forward to that. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and the, well, again, kind of keeping on the historical track, again, talking about kind of uh, history lessons. Black history for me, and this was, you know, when I was in junior high and high school, we're talking about the 1970s, 1980s, considering I graduated from high school in 1984. Um, Black History Month was just painful for me, so painful because I grew up in a predominantly white town and by predominantly white, I mean, it was, was it 99.2% white in Connecticut? So white, upper middle class, New England, New England town. I was the only person of color, not just black person. I was the only person of color. I think in my grade, there was no one ahead of me. And I think there was one person of color, uh, a girl behind me, uh, a year behind me. So you can imagine sitting in a history course, everyone's looking at me. I'm blushing furiously because the way it was the way it was delivered and taught just made me feel so uncomfortable. And then after a while, I started getting angry because every year it was the same thing. It was literally like they pulled out the syllabus from like 1950. These are the bullet points you have to talk about. So it was you know for me, Black History Month was talking about Phyllis Wheatley, Crispus Atticus. Um, and I can't, there was a third, like a, another third, oh, uh, Booker T. Washington and uh, Harriet Tubman. That was, that was in, my, in my school, that was Black History Month, those four people. 
So doing genealogy, coming across the fact that there were free people of color was like a revelation. Now, I mean, I knew that they existed because I read Anne Rice's book, Feast of All Saints. Um, so I knew Louisiana had a population of free African-Americans, but it never occurred to me that other places did because I'd never heard of it. And I'm just wondering if, you know, what stories you've come across in terms of your, your free people of color. For instance, I'm stunned at how many of my melanated ancestors and kinspeople fought in the Amer American Revolution, whether they were birds, hatcocks, heathcocks, prices, Christians. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Um, one, I was stunned, but two, it, you know, it, it really, really made me feel proud um of, of what they did and i wonder what your journey has been uh, well, in that respect well my my experience in school was very different from your experience i grew up and went to segregated schools in new orleans they were all segregated schools and so obviously my teachers were all black that that was my my bringing up uh, I also went to a historically black university, which meant it was very different. You know, I, I, I remember the day Martin Luther King was assassinated right. because I was pledging a sorority. So I remember exactly what happened. But I also had a mother that could tell me about George Washington Carver because she met him because she went to McDonald 35, which was the African-American high school. And she was there. And part of what she had to do as a student was go and listen to him give a lecture about the peanuts. That's what she would tell me. So when you talk about black history, it came from what I got from my mother. And my mother had her grandmother who was born in 1879 sharing what she knew about the Civil War to the point where she would tell my mother about the black soldiers. And so my mother was telling me about the black soldiers and it wasn't until I started doing the research with my Becky's story that I discovered that my grandfather's friends were all in the United States Colored Troops. And I actually found them. They served as witnesses for him on his homestead record. So that's my history. I mean, my history is listening to what my mother had to say, going to church, to a black church, and hearing what was coming out of the black church and going in, into my segregated schools where I grew up, where you couldn't drink out of the water fountain. You understand? Mm -hmm. had black. You could not drink. You couldn't sit on the bus unless you put the colored sign in front of you. We could not go to Pontchartrain Beach. We had to go to Lincoln Beach. And those who are from New Orleans, I think you'll, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. And you couldn't sit at the, the counters in the, in the stores and eat food. I mean, that. so I grew up doing the whole civil rights movement and pushing for equality. And that's kind of, that's my thought process. That's my history, that we had rights and we pushed for our rights. And the community was always together, working toward one goal. And that was justice, that was equality, 
And that was our history that we, we were entitled to that. That's who we are. We are citizens of the United States and we expected to have this. This is what freedom meant to us. So very much in the spirit of my, my father, because um, I, I, will, I will take it to my grave, one of the stories that he shared, because he didn't really like, because he grew up in New Jersey. Um, and I just thought that, you know, that's where he was born and raised. But he uh, enlisted in the U.S. Navy in the 1950s. Um, he actually did a youth uh, naval training scheme. So he went to, he started his naval training when he was 17. And he was telling me a story. And again, remember, this, this is a kid from Montclair, New Jersey, who grew up in a multi-ethnic neighborhood that had kind of every ethnicity living side by side that you can imagine. Um, he got on the bus with his white naval uh, training cadet buddies. They're all in their uniform. And this is Virginia. He was told to sit in the back of the bus. He's in uniform. Um, and he, just, he refused to do it. He refused to do it. And the only reason why they didn't phone the police is because his white naval buddies had his back. Yes, yes. Um, and I wish I could, you know, and I'm going to be honest, I wish I, wish I could see a lot more of that today. Um, just everyone kind of having everyone's back. And I guess what really blew my mind, because when he was relaying the story, he was saying it so calmly. I've seen that. I've seen a picture of him in his uniform, and it's like you were training to fight for your country. You were willing to put your line, your life on the line, service to your country, and the bus driver telling you to sit in the back. I, and that, I, unfortunately, was, was the reality. But I also, you know, grew up in that I'm black and I'm proud, and we all wore <laughs> big afros. <laughs> I mean, it was it was a, a very empowering part of that growing up process of, of our identity because identity played a big role in, in us saying, hey, you're not going to do this to us. And even when people are doing their genealogy, I tell, you know, talk to your parents, talk to the elders, talk to them about what it was like back then. Mm. Because one of the things that if, if there's nothing else that we ever get across to our kids is that education is important. Your role is not to go in class and be a clown. Your role is to go in class and learn so you can come out because you are the future, just as our parents told us that we were the future. And so the little stories that you receive, you got them from your parents who could tell you this is the way life was. And they always wanted it to be better for us. And that, that, that's part of my looking at that, that whole history of where, where my family came from. And can you guys I can. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Oh goodness, I'm so sorry. So I just want to. I've been listening to the show, and I wanted to um, also jump in and just thank you again, Bernice, for coming in. I'm sorry, you guys, that I was uh, so late. Well, not necessarily late. It was. I'm just having serious issues. But nevertheless, Bernice, you were um, you were making some comments about your book from Louisiana, how did you get, I don't remember hearing Brian ask, hey Karen, hey guys, sorry about all of the issues, but Bernice, I don't I don't remember, at, 
what made you start actually getting into writing your um the book in the Louisiana? It was an, it was my grandmother, my okay. year old grandmother who was born in 1894, told me that her grandfather Peter Clark owned a lot of land. Now you can imagine somebody telling you this, and you're wondering where's the land, right? Right. <laughs> I mean that's right. what it's all about. But she also told me that she was named after her grandmother, Rebecca. And so is this the same grandmother that you had that beautiful picture of? The grandmother that you speak, I, well, they're both beautiful pictures, yes. But the one grandmother is the grandmother from right. South Carolina. Both of my stories began with my grandmothers. One grandmother unfortunately passed away in 1928 of which I never knew. However, I was always told, my twin sister and I were always told that we looked like our grandmother. And so my journey with South Carolina was to find living relatives. My journey with my maternal grandmother was to verify her oral history, to verify that narrative, to see if indeed the narrative would play out in the documents. And so from a genealogical perspective, I am a, I'm a sleuth. I'm just like Sherlock Holmes. I go crazy and I don't stop. I am relentless when it comes to digging. And yes. for me, digging means I don't just do it. I'm not an online researcher 100% of the time. I will drive, I will fly, I will get on a train and a bus because I'm going to the home place. I want to walk the land. I want to talk to, to the soil. I want to you know, conjure up the ancestors to help me as much as possible. And so with that story, I'm talking about all of that <laughs> and, and what it takes to really verify the information that someone tells you about. Cool. Well, I have a I have a process question for you, and you're the perfect one of the perfect people to actually right. ask this question. Uh, so, when you're coming up or you're developing your research strategy, whether it's um specifically to research a specific person, yes, kind of what goes into how you develop your research strategy? Well, my my research strategy always starts with what's at home. Okay. What can I find in my home? I, I do that before I ever, ever, ever go anywhere. And I start looking for documents in, in, in the home. So as I mentioned to you earlier, a family Bible. Is there information in the family Bible? Do they have vital records at home? Death certificates, birth certificates, marriage license. All of this is stuff that I'm looking for at home. Any stories that family members can tell me? Do they have any other kind of documents, uh, wills, deeds? Because the family did keep, they kept records. Uh, so I want to first gather as much as I can from my home before I move to the next level and then try to make sense out of what I have. So by doing that, do you find that that really kind of, as you're, as you're finding things at home and you're kind of building out the information that you have for an ancestor, does that actually help you narrow your focus? So say for instance, when you go to the Tompkins library, yes. instead of looking for a vast array of documents, you're looking for specific things. You're looking for specific things. Absolutely. I'm looking for very specific things when I go. In right. fact, I'll map it out before I leave. 
my home and say, I want to find, for example, one of my uh, ancestors, ancestral connections is with the friars. So I wanted to find, what could I find out about the friar family? So I discovered there was a um, Freedman bank record. But before I even got to the Freedman bank record, I looked at social security application. Can I find my grandfather's mother's name on a social security application? Can I find a delayed birth certificate with my grandmother's name on it? Can I find information about when she died? Can I find anyone that uh, witnessed when my grandfather was born? I mean, I look for all of this and I'm just going back. Each time I add a piece of new information, then I find out as much as I can on that person. And that particular family that I'm mentioning now, I trace them all the way back to being owned by the governor of South Carolina. If they were Pickens, you know, the Pickens slave. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a family I haven't even started to mess with yet. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, on, have, it's on the horizon. I, right. I have a question. Um. So the, this and that's this actually goes into you talking about what you research and how you go how you go about researching. You're actually a part of the um, Midwest African American Institute. Is this something that you guys you you know participate in teaching to other aspiring genealogists as well. Can you give us more information about the, right. the I think it's Magi. And, and, Maggie, and, we call it Maggie. It's the Midwest, Midwest African American Genealogy Institute. It's held every summer at the Allen County Public Library. So we're going on our eighth year. This is an institute. It is not a conference, which means that individuals can sign up for courses. And in that three-day period of time, they are actually given concepts and they are then working it. It's they, they're learning how to analyze so that there's track one, it's fundamentals of genealogy, fundamentals. And so the, the uh, coordinator is Dr. Shelley Murphy. Well, Dr. Shelley Murphy is gonna make you tear down a document tear it down. What can you tell me about this one death certificate? There's something on here that you need to really understand. And so she has the so what, no matter what you come up with, you better be able to explain that document all the way through. And so people are working. We even have a brick wall session where everybody comes together and they help people work through their brick walls. And, you know, uh, if, if any of you have had a chance to listen to one of my shows by Robin Smith, Robin talks about the artificial brick wall. Well, we help people work through that to see, well, maybe I'm not looking in the right place and maybe I'm analyzing this document incorrectly. So that's one of the things. That's one course. Another is DNA. We have DNA for beginners and we have DNA for intermediates. Because you have so many people out there testing, but they have no idea what they're testing. They don't even know whether they did a Y DNA or autosomal DNA or what have you. And so this is a course to teach people how to understand your DNA results, how to make sense of how to connect the dots with the relatives. Yeah, because that's something I'm going to be speaking to at a conference this summer. 
in Virginia is DNA testing, it's a tool, like any other tool. It has its positives, its negatives, but you know, it, it has a very specific reason for being. It answers very specific questions, but it's not a magic wand. It's not gonna miraculously fill in the details of your missing ancestors. It'll indicate who you know, your family lines will probably be. But because um, it's something that I try to stress in a lot of Facebook groups is DNA paired with the paper trail, that's the ticket. It's not one of the, you know, <clears throat> to, have, right. to work with those two pretty much in tandem. Right. Well, you, you're absolutely right. DNA without genealogy and history, I mean, they equal incomplete. You have to pull them all together because it's not going to answer your question. I mean, it will tell you how many relatives you have, but until you do the genealogy, you're still not going to get it. You're still not going to get it. Because in a way, African-Americans African specifically, we kind of have three, I hate, I hate to say brick wall, pseudo, pseudo brick walls, faux, faux brick walls. We have the 1870 census is one. Then we have those two big pulses of migrations out of the South. And it's something that, you know, if you have deep Southern roots, uh, all of a sudden you're seeing entire families just disappear off the face of the earth. One of the first things I asked was, well, are they leaving around the First World War? Are they leaving around the Second World War? It's like, because you start to, you know, especially if it's male ancestors, I start suggesting you need to look at draft cards, World War I draft cards, World War II draft cards, look at the surname, see who's moving from your state to Detroit, D.C., Baltimore, just all the big places our people went to. Um, and sometimes people people think of that as, as a revelation. Um, so in terms of brick walls, I do kind of chuckle about the 1871. Because um, as you said, there's so many different arrays of records out there that we can actually bust through that one. But there's another two that never really seem to get talked about. And that's, like I said, those two big pulses out of the South going either into the North, the Midwest, or the Western states. Right. And also, you, you talk about 1870. It's almost like people forget something happened between 1860 and 1870. But let's give an example. You look at some of these television shows, they jump from 1870 to 1860. And I'm like, mm -hmm. wait a minute. What happened in 1869? What happened in 1868? I mean, yeah. you have yeah. records that have been created. You have the Freedmen Bureau record. You mm -hmm. have Freedmen Bank record. You have voter registration records in some places. And people are not even looking at that. They're jumping to say, oh, my ancestor was enslaved. Maybe they were, maybe they were not. But that's how you can systematically look at the documents to find where your ancestors were at a particular time and place. And keep in mind, I mean, the census is good, but the census is one point in time in one year. Yeah. We have a whole lot happening between that year, between those years, for example. Even the, the loss of the 1890 census. Look at all the things you could use as census substitutes, you know, that people don't even think about let alone Civil War pension records. Those records are just wonderful. I mean, it's like a treasure trove of information in the Civil War pension 
records if people find that their ancestors were in the Civil War. And I tell people, look, if you find a document and you find an index, please order your record. You have a record at the National Archives. And believe me, when you get it, everybody will be doing happy dances because you're seeing an entire narrative. You're seeing primary sources talking about what happened during the Civil War. And you have family members coming in. You have witnesses coming in, not to mention witnesses. Everybody, you have a document, you have somebody's name on it, follow the witness. I believe in following the witnesses because the witnesses are also telling a narrative about how they know that person. They they're talking about the community. And so that's what you have to do. You have to do your community genealogy. You can't just stop at your ancestor. You know, I, well, this is something I get really excited about, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and let me just say this. You know, we have, um, we have a lot of people that have been sending in comments and everything. And we normally, you know, we acknowledge them, but because of the the, the uh, technical issues, we, we weren't able to. But I wanted to just come up on some of these acknowledgements and I'm actually following them on the Our Black Ancestry because one thing that's great about this particular platform is that it's flowing live on every Facebook page that we're on. So, but not all of the comments come up if they're not on the genealogy. So on the Our Black Ancestry, we have one who happens to be all three of our cousins, and um, she said that I'm re I'm related to all three of you with a big heart. That was our cousin <laughs> Tiffany Huntsman. Oh, so and, and and um, I'm really huh? Yeah. <laughs> so we we tend to you know really kind of connect to all of them, and then we have. Other people who are um, sending out information. And just to let you know, Bernice, we have watchers from Ireland right now. We have watchers from Denmark right now, um, which is two of our, definitely two of our high people up on our, as far as our fans are concerned, Martine and um, Karen. And Karen is, is actually going to be participating in our DNA project to help as so you are like a part of you you're known the world I can sit here and I can tell all of you that Bernice was one of my beginning coaches she was one just I when I first started doing my research you know um right away and, and just really sustaining myself into it it was people like Bernice and Natan and Gail Bush and and um, our late Gail Bush and and our late Sheila Hightower. Those were the kind of molding me and why I do what I do right now. These were the ones. These were the women. This is one of my women that really guided me in the direction that I need to go. And I'm forever grateful to you for that because anybody to just do that with. So I'm very, very grateful. And then I was just pushed and found Brian and loving love. Y'all already know that's y'all already know. He was, he was, he's my right. Sheila was my left. Life was good. You know, my part of my arm is cut off, but I'm still moving forward. You know, so I'm very, I'm 
very excited about having you be able to talk to you. And another thing that you do is you are also a part of a lot of organizations. Is do you think that being a part of the different organizations, because you're a part of the um the OGS, which is the African American Historical and Genealogical Society. You're a part of the Sons and Daughters, the Passage, Passageway group. You're a part of Maggie. I mean, do you think that these things helped you move forward and grow even more as far as your genealogy is concerned? Absolutely. Uh, the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society was the first uh, society that I joined. And it was just a wonderful opportunity to go to an AUGS meeting in Little Rock, Arkansas, and to meet other African-American researchers talking about strategies, talking about the findings, their ancestral findings. And it was just part of what I needed to do. And I strongly encourage people to become a part of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society. We have chapters all over the United States. I'm also a member of the National Genealogical Society. I mean, there's opportunity for networking, opportunity for attending conferences, getting magazines, uh, getting the quarterly. You read and you understand research strategies because you want to do it the right way. You don't want to just pick some random ancestor. You see the name that looks like your ancestor's name and say, oh, that's my ancestor. No, you want to be able to say, that is my ancestor because, and you have all of the evidence to support the statement that you make. And so that is what being a part of the various societies will do for you. Now with the sons and daughters of the U.S. Middle Passage, that is a society, it's a lineage society where I am honoring my ancestor that came here through the Middle Passage. And Andrew Kemp from Edgefield is the first one that I've honored and I joined. I'm a charter member because of the documentation I was able to find on him. So I encourage everybody, you know, we have individuals that have found their patriot ancestor and they've joined the sons and daughters of this group, but they've joined the daughters of the American Revolution. Well, this is another type of group. It is a, a lineage society for those of you who are ready to honor your ancestors and say, look, look at what they did. Look at who I am. I am here because of them. Which brings me to the question. Um, I, I, if I could just ask this before we kind of cycle off to another topic. Bernice, do you think that we are in a place or a position where there is a society that can compile a national kind of people of color family tree. Because now, you know, we have so many African-Americans um, and people of color doing DNA tests, working on their family trees, doing the paper trail, but there's so many different societies. There's societies for, you know, within states, within counties. Could there be just one place where everyone could submit their, their family tree? to build like a, a national family tree. The, the big, big tree. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they they probably could. You it would be a very daunting task. You would have to definitely have individuals that can um, monitor such a process and make certain that the names that are collected and put on the tree are the right names. Yep. I mean, I have seen I have seen huge trees with from 50,000 to 100,000 people on the tree. And I've questioned, is this legitimate? Or did they just grab everybody's tree? And those trees are not connecting the dots the right way. So I just feel that if there's going to be one place where all the trees go, and of course you do have family search. And family search has encouraged a lot of people to put their trees on it. You also have ancestry.com. But when you're talking about this one massive tree, you know, I think that that will require a great deal of work and coordination. No, no, I agree. It would be a huge task. But the reason why I ask that is, I guess in terms of my own research, it, you know, just showing interconnections going all, you know, all the way back from say Alabama, going all the way back to Virginia, or even parts of uh, New England, you know, New England was phasing out slavery. People still wanted to be in slavery, so they moved south where they can still continue slavery. And just keep, every day, I just keep finding new, you know, new connections, new ways that I'm related to people. So, you know, you think, I can't, I can't remember how many millions of Africans were enslaved in this particular country. Um, but you think about their descendants all marrying each other. We're all going to be connected in one way or another. And I just thought, thought that kind of maybe having that one big tree would be a beautiful way to kind of illustrate that. Well, it certainly would. It'd be interesting to see where that would go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I wouldn't want to be the one responsible for compiling it and, <laughs> and, and fact checking. You could, because you could, as you said, the, the fact checking alone is going to be a daunting task. Yeah. I mean, Donnie can talk about fact-checking just for the DAR and what a daunting task that is. Why? Right. Yeah. And then also just for what we do as far as the um, edge field is concerned, I mean, your tree is over six figures, well over six figures, and we're talking about all of these people that we're fact-checking and constantly going back and looking at them again actually going back by accident sometimes because we found something else and it pulls in another group and you're like, wait, I thought I was finished with them. And you go back and you have to do it all over again. So yeah, I would not be responsible. I'm going to walk away from that tree. <laughs> walk away from that. I mean, just like we tried yeah, I tried to walk away from the Moses Williams tree and you won't let me do it. The man had 45 kids and yet we're sitting up here trying to find all 45 children. That's that's a problem. So, um, but Bernice, you're also um, a part of another, and look at this real quick because I've never heard of it before. I'm wondering if this is with Louisiana, a group called Le Commit? Yeah, Le Comité, yes, Le Comité. Okay. And uh, that, that is also a genealogy group headed up by Judy Riffle in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And they put out a magazine called uh, Low Racketeur. And it includes uh, historical, the, the, the magazine itself includes historical information about Louisiana. But also we are divided by parishes. 
And so they're parish guides to help people conduct research in various parishes throughout Louisiana. Uh, I, for a, a while, sponsored the St. Helena Parish Guide. And that's because that was the original place my ancestors were from. But the large proportion of my DNA matches, if you will, are all from St. Landry Parish, Opelousas. You, it's like, you're from St. Landry, you're related to me. But, you know, I'm from New Orleans originally. But, it, of course, there was movement back and forth. And my, my uh, grandmother and grandfather and great-grandmother are from St. Helena Parish and Livingston Parish. So you have to know where these places are. This is the south. It's not at the top. It's at the bottom. You know, it's close to New Orleans. And that's where my people are from. Well, it's funny you should mention that because our next special guest the week after next is Phoebe Hayes from that very same oh, okay. um, yes. committee. Yes. Okay. She, she's our next speaker. Great. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, just because... Um, Again, I was blessed a couple of years ago to do a full presentation, uh, be a keynote speaker for their annual conference. And it was the first time I'd actually learned about doing just, just the rudiments of Louisiana genealogy. And to say that it is complex and completely different from any other genealogy I've ever seen will be a huge understatement. Because again, you have to know Spanish, you have to know French, then you have to know English. That's right. That's right. Um, and from what I understand, very few records have actually been digitized. I think Louisiana, from what I understand, Louisiana is digitizing more and more. Um, yes, some, yes, but some of the records that I have obtained, I've actually gone and gotten the original records. I've gone to, I'm a courthouse person. <laughs> so, you know, I told you, I jumped, you know, I just plane, the train, the, um, the car, I walk, I do whatever, but I'm in the courthouse. And so sometimes that's what you have to do is go to the courthouse and, and pull the original files. And if anybody has ever been to St. Helena Courthouse, you know there's a vault with records in steel cans and they go from the floor to the ceiling. So they have a lot of records. Yes, yes. Big ledger books and what have you. <laughs> so I'm aware of the time. We're coming up to five o'clock. Just want, wanted to ask anyone in the audience if they had any specific um, questions or shout out for Bernice. And while we're waiting for that, while, while we're waiting for that, I wanted to ask you, Bernice, do you have, because um, I wanted, I, me and Bernice was right on the same page. I was actually ready to go into that type of thing. And then also ask, are there any links to different things that you have that we can share with our audience? as far as Maggie, like when it, Maggie, when they can start registering for it or um, your book, if you have any links going towards your book. Yes. Um, you know. Okay, first of all, Maggie, registration is open for Maggie right now. And the website is www.maggieinstitute.org. And so and Maggie, is that there. one G or two Gs? It's one uh, G I Midwest African American Genealogy Institute. So that's correct. That's correct. And when they go to the Maggie site, they will see five tracks. 
And we actually have added a new one, Five Civilized Tribes. For those of you that are very interested in, yes, and Angela Walt Rogers heading up that track. And then, then we have uh, we have a writing for those of, uh, interested in writing. We have a writing track, and one day it's a writing lab, and that's all they're doing is they're writing. So you have an opportunity to take the writing track, the pre and post-emancipation track, the DNA track, the fundamentals track, and there's also another track that's part of fundamentals and it's going to teach people about slave era documents. You're gonna understand about slave narratives, runaway slave ads. I mean, the things that we don't think about or people don't really delve into, that's what we will be doing at, at Maggie, not to mention wills and deeds and what have you. Okay, uh, we have one question from Martine Brennan and she said, can you list some sources you would use 18 for 1880 to 1900, please. Uh, I would definitely use the, of course, the census. I would definitely use uh, a Civil War pension record. I think that that's a, a great record for you all to find information. I would look at the um, any type of record that's in your local community. So let's say the newspaper. You know, go to the newspaper. You may find information, voter registration list, uh, uh, and of course, vital records, birth, death, marriage. Those are the, the records I would recommend. And it depends on where you're from, whether those records are available. So you need to also right. look at, you know, when is a record available in this particular state? Uh, to that, I would also add property deeds, property records, and um, yes, definitely land. Mm -hmm. Court court cases, especially involving property and boundary lines. Court cases during this time period would be another good one. For African Americans, this is a period where railroad expansion across America was really kicking off, and it was one of the few industries that Black people could get into, whether you know, um, for employment. So those real, those real, and I can't remember, I think they're stored in, is it Atlanta? It's somewhere in Georgia that's like the main repository for those railway worker employment records. And, and depending on what state, uh, for example, Mississippi, you have educable children lists. Yeah. Uh, so you want to, you know, look at what's, what's available in your, your state as far as uh, school. Jeans teachers, if they had jeans teachers and they set up these Rosenwald schools, you want to try to look in some of those records. Some communities, they have medical records. So you want to look and see, you know, what's there in the various medical records. And um, uh, not to mention, you know, you have a period, this is a little beyond 1900, but you have universities and you have schools that uh, set up sororities and fraternities and what have you. You know, I'm AKA 1908 at Howard University. So you wanna look at what's happening in those communities with the universities and higher education. Uh, uh, one of the coroner's reports. Yes, yeah. that's what yeah. I was getting ready to say. We know about the coroner's report, yes, don't we? we do. <laughs> you wanna go to the coroner's reports, you wanna look at Mason records, 
if you have masons, masons in your community, social and pleasure clubs. I mean, those are groups that came together in your community to help people. You know, you're doing, you're going through reconstruction. What kind of groups in the communities were organizing, and what kind of records did they keep? Did they keep? Yep. Not to mention the churches. Don't forget the churches. And that's church. one of the things that I found at Edgefield. They actually had uh, church records to show when deeds were taken out for the churches. And so you want to look at that because you may see your ancestors' names on there as trust. And, and to that, I would add county tax records, if they exist and if they're available. Also, there was tax records and there was another set of records that were like that. Were like that. It'll come to me. Sorry, it's literally just, just gone out of my head. Oh, if you have a sense, especially if your ancestors lived in a very rural place and they like to make money on the side, like I have a family that was forever making moonshine and getting caught for making moonshine. But it was so, it was so lucrative for them to do it, they didn't care that they had to pay a fine. Um, newspaper articles. Um, that's where I've actually found a lot about this family. They were forever going into court. The whole family is being named invaluable. Um, so, yeah. Yes, I definitely agree with the court records. That's where I found a lot of information. I was surprised, actually, to find my ancestors in Louisiana in court. Guardianship records. Yeah. That's the one that I was think, trying to think yes. of, guardianship records. Mm -hmm. um, we got another question. This one is off of Albert Ancestry, and they said, how can I get historical designation for, for my family church and cemetery? Do you know anything about that? I, I think you need to go to the historical society in your community and find out more information about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, the other thing is, what about your um, show? How often is your show shown? And I realized that you actually changed the name of it to Ancestors Footprints. Yes. The, the artwork hasn't changed, but the, de the show has definitely changed. Yeah. Ancestors Footprints. I broadcast every Thursday night. Sometimes I'll do a special. For example, okay. I have a special coming in this uh, Wednesday. Um, on attention deficit uh, disorder, which is different. You we could kind of wonder, what does that have to do with genealogy? Well, we're talking about patterns in the family and family yeah. history. And so I have uh, guests who are coming on and they're going to talk about that. Uh, but after the show, I'm a podcast and the podcasts are available anytime you can just listen at your leisure. And so I have over 300 plus episodes and just have fun. Just go back and listen until you are saturated. <laughs> with you have a, web, a, a link to that. What's the link to, to your web to your podcast? slash Bernice Bennett, and that'll take you right through it. But I'm also on Stitcher.com, iTunes, TuneIn.com. You name it. I'm on just about every podcast platform. That's right. You are everything from iTunes and beyond. That's right. <laughs> so Bernice, thank you so much for joining us um, on this Sunday. Uh, awesome, Bernice. Well, thank you so much for having me. And hey, I look forward to talking to you in the future.
same here. All the best with the new book. I know I, for one, can't wait for, well, I can't wait for spring to get here anyway, but that gives me an extra reason for, Thank uh, you. for spring to get here quickly. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. And to everyone else, thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you on, just consulting my notes, we will see you next on the 17th of February, where Phoebe Hayes from the uh, Louisiana Archives will be joining us. And until then, have a blessed Sunday. See you on the 17th. Bye.